This is Campus Voices. Issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. A public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU. Good morning and welcome to Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway, and as always, I thank you for your time on this Sunday morning. Our guest this morning is Lindsay Adario, who is a worldwide known American photojournalist who's covered humanitarian crises for the New York Times, National Geographic, and others for more than two decades. She will be the guest speaker coming up Tuesday evening, March 5th at 7 o'clock in the latest installment of the E.N. Thompson Forum on World Affairs being held at the Leeds Center on our downtown city campus, and she joins us via Zoom this morning to talk a little bit about her background and uh, what you might be seeing and hearing, primarily seeing, since she's a visual person, when you attend the Thompson Forum on Tuesday evening. Lindsay, it is a delight to meet you, and I appreciate you taking time to be with us this morning. Well, thank you so much for having me. I know you are traveling all the time, or at least it seems like it. Can I at least ask what time zone you're in right now? Are you back stateside, or are you still overseas? No, I uh, just got back from Ukraine last night, and I live in London. So I am in London, uh, five hours ahead of New York. So whatever time it is in Nebraska, I'm not sure, but yeah. I'm uh, I'm in London, All fresh right, out of good. Ukraine. Yeah. Well, we look forward to having you come to Lincoln here in just a couple of days. Uh, how long was this latest dispatch to Ukraine? How long were you there? Uh, it was about three and a half weeks. Um, usually the New York Times stints are anywhere from four to six weeks. Uh, this was, I think, my eighth or ninth rotation in Ukraine. So they're getting a bit shorter just because it's two years in and it's harder and harder to keep uh, leaving my family for such long stints. Your experience with Ukraine goes right to basically the start of the, the conflict with Russia, does it not? It does. Um, I actually arrived in Ukraine on the 14th of February 2022 uh, in anticipation of whatever might happen. And um, of course, when the full scale invasion started on the 24th, uh, I was working in Donbass, so I was in eastern Ukraine at the time and sort of quickly made my way to Kiev, where I stayed for um, a total of about seven weeks. The uh, address you'll be giving us on Tuesday evening is a bit of a spinoff from the title of your solo collection of photography called Of Love and War with a subtext of stories of tragedy and resilience. What kind of, I don't want to ask you to give too much away to what people will be seeing. Of course, a radio interview can't do that justice anyway. But what kinds of things will you be discussing with the audience Tuesday night at the Leeds Center? Actually, the talk is sort of a combination of both books, my memoir, it's what I do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War, and also my photo book, which is Of Love and War. And so it um, I plan to sort of take uh, everyone through the arc of my career, how I got started in photojournalism and how I started covering conflict, and then really through sort of the main stories I've covered over the past 20 years from um, the fall of the Taliban in Afghanistan to the war in Iraq, uh, some stories in Africa, some women's stories, um, and then straight up to present. So, the you know, the last few years covering the full-scale invasion of Ukraine and some climate change. So it's really quite a range of stories, but it's also 
the stories behind the stories. I'll be talking a lot about sort of what happens as I approach these stories, how people respond to me, how people respond to the stories. So it's a real sort of uh, spectrum. And I know I read that uh, growing up in Connecticut that you say one of the early uh, experiences you had with photography was sitting on your folks' roof at night taking pictures of the moon. And did that did that uh, look at the moonscape give you any thought about the the range of international travels that you'd be doing later on? Oh, not at all. I mean, I at that time, I was so young. I was probably about 13 and I was just trying to figure out the camera, you know, how to capture light. Um, how to capture a moment in time. Um, and I never took a photography class. So a lot of it was about, you know, reading books on how to photograph and just trial and error, really. So, of course, I had no idea growing up in Connecticut that my work would end up taking me to over 100 countries around the world, um, across continents and, and through war zones, which was something I never imagined or dreamed of. Your father's gift of a camera got you started down this path. I know you said you never took photography courses formally, but I know you've had uh, in your time a lot of uh, of mentors and of uh, folks that you greatly respected in the business. Who were some of the people whose work early on you really admired and, and who uh, helped shape what you do today? I mean, my, you know, I'm consistently like any artist or, or or journalist, I'm consistently looking to a range of people. You know, I think it starts with the the, the sort of classics, Robert Kappa, but also a lot of contemporaries like Jim Noctaway. Um, I looked at people who were not war photographers like Mary Ellen Mark, Sally Mann, um, just people who who photographed people, Nan Golden for photographing sort of, um, you know, um, her own world around her. I felt like that was her work at the time was so powerful when I was first getting involved in photography and doing some of my first photo essays. So, you know, the people I admired weren't necessarily war photographers to begin with. Some were, but some were not at all. I read that one of your earliest pieces of uh, where you really got to sink your teeth into a big story was dealing with transgendered sex workers in New York. Um, what did that story tell you about uh, what you learn from doing that story in, in terms of earning trust and privacy and the nuance of bringing a story like that to your readers and viewers? Yeah, I mean, that story was um, really the first time in my very young career that I had to try to access a world that was completely inaccessible to me. I mean, I didn't have any contacts. I I uh, was trying to sort of get into a trans sex worker community that they were, by nature, very distrustful of outsiders. And so... Um, you know, it taught me kind of everything about how to gain people's trust, how to work slowly, how to be transparent about what I was trying to do um, and be patient. You know, it was really a story that I worked on for the better part of a year. Um, and the first few weeks, I didn't even photograph. It was really just about showing up and uh, meeting people and talking to them and talking about what I wanted to do. And that was really just tell their story. So it, it taught me a lot. And um, I still look to that body of work as sort of one of my one of the bodies of work I'm 
kind of most proud of after all of these years. It's not, not the body of work, but it's certainly in there with some of the other really challenging stories I've done. Have you thought, uh, you mentioned you're thinking back on all the stories you've done. Have you thought back to that particular one, given the current elevation of trans issues in the public voice, public marketplace right now? You know, yes. And I, you know, I I would like to sort of revisit that body of work. I've been working quite closely with a curator, Perry Hoffman, Um they helped me curate my retrospective at the School of Visual Arts. And we've spoken about maybe trying to put together a book, kind of revisiting that work and re-editing the whole thing. Um, because, you know, in the, initially we edited it for the Associated Press. So it was a very different um, a very different sort of, not venue, but we were editing it for a wire service. And so uh, I shot the whole thing on negative. So we're looking back at the negatives and thinking about having a whole different edit rescanned and and put out there. And I think that's really exciting because it is, um, you know, it is a body of work that I feel like can really further be explored. It's something I wouldn't mind continue shooting as well. You've mentioned several times in, in other pieces about you that I've read that uh, you, you felt like you grew up in a a pretty good comfort zone, a comfortable home and a comfortable community. And you've certainly had to break out of that comfort zone several times. I'm guessing the trans story was probably one of the the, the times when that happened. How do you, did you work through that challenge of, of leaving what was comfortable to you and realizing that it was important for you to go tell stories in places that might not be as comfortable? I don't, it's hard to describe. I'm not sure what sort of inspires me to to push me out of my comfort zone and to push me to continue forward. I think I think it's really important um for the development of not only my work but also my my character to to not be too comfortable and to really force myself to 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 be a little uncomfortable because I think a lot of the people I photograph are often uncomfortable or are often marginalized and so um I, I'm not really sure what it is in me but I but I do think that even 25 years into this career, I'm often pushing myself to a place where uh, I, you know, I'm not really sure I'm doing the right thing. I'm not really sure I'll be okay, but I think it's important for the work. And I think it's important to create a powerful body of work is to sort of not always be very comfortable. You have been to a lot of war zones. What was the origin of that opportunity and that interest in going to a, a place where conflict existed? Um, the origin was um, in 2000, I moved to India. Um, it was sort of an invitation from a family friend to go on a trip to India. And I, my interests have always been sort of overseas. And um, I lived in Argentina in the 90s, right after college. I, I moved there to study Spanish. And then I moved back to New York to sort of learn and, and learn how to photograph and have mentors. And there I started freelancing for the Associated Press. And then I had this opportunity to move to India and I sort of jumped on it. And at that time, um, I decided to just stay and see if I could freelance uh, across South Asia. And I started covering women's issues under the Taliban 
um, and actually across South Asia at that time. So this is before September 11th. And I ended up making uh, three trips to Afghanistan under the Taliban to basically explore issues about women living under the Taliban at that time. And so when September 11th happened, I had a very sort of unique breadth of work under the Taliban. And so it was kind of natural for me to go and sort of raise my hand to cover the war because I had already been there so many times. And so, um, but I wasn't thinking of going as like a war photographer. For me, it was still, this is a place I'm interested in. I can tell these stories. I feel, you know, I'm familiar with the culture. And so I went, and at that time, there was not sort of active combat going on uh, when I went in because it was already after the fall of the Taliban. And then, and then with the, I ended up continuing to go to Afghanistan. I covered the fall of the Taliban, but then it was clear that we were going to war in Iraq. And so that's really where I raised my hand and said, okay, I'm, I would like to go to Iraq. I'm, you know, aware that it can be fighting and it could be something that I've never done before. So I tried to figure out a way that I could do that and learn from the journalists around me. Um, I didn't jump straight into a military embed because I did didn't feel like I had the experience and I didn't know if I would be able to keep up, frankly. And so um, I started gradually in 2003 covering conflict and and have been doing it since, really. In I know you've said there are challenges in, in photographing women and covering women in other countries. What were some of the nuances and protocols that you needed to learn to, to be comfortable to make them comfortable with you and to make sure that you were not um, stepping outside what the, the the expectations and the protocols were of their societies? Well, I think a lot of that has to do with being informed. A lot of that has to do with me uh, doing my homework and, and understanding the culture, understanding what's okay, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, uh, both of the local women and of myself as a foreign journalist and as a foreign woman. Um, I think at that time, and I think something that is sort of holds true that as a foreign journalist, I'm often treated as this kind of third sex, you know, I'm not, I, I obviously don't have to follow the same rules as, as local women, but I I have to be respectful and dress in accordance with how women cover themselves. Um, but I am allowed to sort of move around and, and go in and out of people's homes and meet with men to interview them. And, and so, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with me doing my homework and being informed. And then the other thing is being respectful and being non-judgmental and to really approach um, approach people with an open mind and to really give them a chance to speak and to tell their stories because ultimately, you know, it's not about me. It's about the people I'm covering. And so I think that's really important. I like the fact that you you stressed the research because we try to do that with all of our students too, to say never go into a situation without having done your homework first. And there was a particular quote that I highlighted in a piece that I read about you that said, we were, you said, 95% of photography is everything but photographing. It's about doing your homework, research, getting access, setting things up, making people feel comfortable doing the reporting. There's no, uh, no much, not much more that goes into the photograph. And I love this last line, by the time you click the shutter, the hardest part of the work has been done. 
I really like that. And I know we stress that with our students as well. But when you talk to to young people and you, you see uh, young folks getting started in the business, do you think they get too hung up on technology and tools to the detriment of the other things that you mentioned? Absolutely. And I think there's also kind of this impatience uh, that I see now that, you know, photography and journalism, uh, it's a really old profession. It's something that requires uh, experience. It ex- it requires intuition. It requires relationships. It requires people feeling comfortable around you and, you know, also making people feel comfortable. It's very important sort of just human relationships. Uh, and so I do think that it's important for people, especially new people going into this profession to, to take your time to do your homework, to, you know, follow, look at mentors, have people who, who have been doing this profession for a long time, follow them around, you know, take your time. Because I get emails often from people graduating from university saying like, hi, I want to work for the New York Times or National Geographic. How do I do that? And it's like, wow, I mean, it took like a really long time. You know, I started at like the small local newspaper. I went to a wire service. I worked, you know, I, I worked a really long time before I started getting good assignments. And so I think it's important to be patient and to put your time in. Just do these three things and you'll be a cover photographer for National Geographic before you know it. Right. So, uh, right. Well, we have a, uh, an alum of the, of the college, uh, Joel Sartori from National Geographic, who actually just lives around the corner from me. And I know he's talking oh, great. To you about the amount of time and effort and sweat equity he's put into it. And I have a, a friend who's a, a professional photographer that so he always gets bothered by people that say, that's a great photo. You must have a fabulous camera. And he always responds. It's like saying, I love that dinner. You must have a great stove. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> Your yeah, photographs fun. have helped so many of us learn more about people all over the world. What have you learned about yourself in the process of telling us those stories? Well, first of all, thank you. Uh, that means a lot. Um, I've learned, uh, I think I, I'm still learning so much from the people I photograph. I mean, I would say the, my number one takeaway is how extraordinary human beings are, you know, especially in the face of challenge and difficulty and hardship. I find people incredibly resilient, um, and, uh, very generous and, um, their ability to sort of overcome is extraordinary for me. And so I try to learn from the people I photograph and to to use that in my own life. And, and so I hope that, you know, that strength of character comes through in so many of my photos, even when they're tough subjects. The the work that you've done, you're talking a couple of times here about uh, getting out of your comfort zones. And, and in some cases, the stories and the photos sort of jar us out of our comfort zones, reminding me a little bit of of the work that uh, uh, Ed Murrow did during World War II when folks suddenly on the home front were listening in real time to the bombing of London uh, or of the work of the Vietnam photographers that made that kind of into America's living room war where they were seeing stuff for the first time and that it sort of did jar us forcibly out of our comfort zones. Uh, is, is that... 
I know you don't set out necessarily to do that, but is that sort of the necessary byproduct of some of the stories that you tell that folks of us sitting in the comfort of you know my home here in Lincoln, Nebraska, see stories of folks in Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan and go, oh my goodness, I had no idea that was what it was like. I mean, sometimes, yeah, to be fair, I mean, sometimes I do want to sort of shake you out of your comfort zone, you know? Sometimes I do try to elicit that, um, not so much shock, but hey, look at this photograph and pay attention and ask questions. Because I, I think when I'm out there in the field and I see something that kind of takes my breath away or breaks my heart or makes me stop and weep, uh, I feel like the public should do the same. You know, I know that we all have issues in our own lives and our respective lives, and we all have a lot going on, but, you know, the world is vast and there, there's a lot happening. And I think that we are, we live in a very, connected world. And I think we should be aware of each other's issues and and pay attention. I teach an ethics course here in the college, and a couple of things have come up this semester that I, I kind of wanted to get your take on, because I, I sense you've dealt with some of this yourself and the stories you've covered. When you're covering some of these horrific scenes in battle or um, things like uh, well, any of the, the, the traumatic things that you've had to cover, when do you, as a human being, when do you, how do you resist the urge to want to step in and intervene if you might be able to help someone who's suffering versus the role of being the documentarian and making sure that we all get to see what's going on rather than putting the camera down and helping out? So I think there's this sort of misconception about photographers that we are the only person on the scene because we're the ones taking the photograph. And I think the most important thing to realize is that often when I am somewhere, there are people with all the tools around me to help. Like there are medics, there are doctors, there are uh, local NGOs or organizations there to help. And so that's not my job to help. My job is to document, to create awareness, to educate, to provide a record of history. And so if I am in the rare situation where I'm the only person there, I'm I'm also not medically trained. Sure, I have trauma first aid. I have their sort of basic things that I can do. I can give someone a ride to a hospital or a medical facility, but I cannot, I have to be very careful that that person is not a combatant uh, because you can also not get involved in a conflict, you know? So I think, and if I do, that puts my entire staff at risk, you know, my translators, driver, anyone at risk, if we take someone from one side of a conflict and other people find out. So I think there, there are a lot of elements that are at play when a journalist is in the field. And so first and foremost, do I have the tools to help? Can I ethically help? Is there no one else around? I mean, those are all questions that that have to be answered and considered. And you as a, a viewer or a consumer of a photograph, when you look at that photograph, it may look like the person in my frame is the only person around, but that's just framing. That's not to say that is the case. We've had some discussions in class as well about what happens when you are sent to cover a very delicate situation where people's emotions are at play. And I know you've covered some COVID-19 funerals and been in funeral homes where there were grieving families as well as families on war zones. What are some of the ethical considerations that you work through when deciding how and when to take a photograph and how and when to step back and not, not intrude on someone's personal space? 
I mean, I always ask and I sort of leave it up to the subject. I leave it up to the people who are grieving, the people who are suffering. You know, I I think sometimes, obviously, it's very awkward to have to stop when someone is grieving and ask permission. But I think, you know, there are ways of doing that. Sometimes I, I, I stand in someone's eye line and I kind of hold up my camera and ask with my without saying anything. And people know, I mean, people will tell you right away. So for me, the biggest um, indicator is is whether I have permission or not. You know, it's really just I ask. And and I think I've been doing this for so many years. And I and and so for me, it's really about, um, you know, I I I feel like I I generally know how to approach people even in those really sensitive moments. But it's not to say that it's easy. I mean, it's it's very, very difficult. One of the things that a lot of our visiting professionals discuss these days is the increasingly difficult struggle of balancing work-life relationships and balance. And I, I know you have children and and uh, the, the, you're, you're gone a lot as a result, as a lot of working professionals are on both sides of things. How has that, how have you come to terms with that and has that become easier or more challenging for you in the last several years? I mean, it's very, very difficult. Um, I I always think that things will slow down, but in fact, they just keep getting busier and busier and the demands, um, you know, I, I'm asked to be right now, I'm basically away 20 days a month on average. Uh, I have two small children. I have a four-year-old and a 12-year-old and my husband uh, is the primary caregiver. We've set it up since before we had children. We talked about it and that was the arrangement that he would be the one who is home with them and takes them to school and deals with their after school activities. And, and, but it's not to say that that's easy because I come home like I did yesterday. I come home from an almost month away and the kids have a whole different routine. They like to eat different things. They like to do different things. And they're constantly like, mom, you don't know anything. And my husband's like, you don't know anything. And so I'm always feeling like I'm I'm struggling, like I'm a horrible mother. Or I'm just not, you know, I don't know my own children. And I have to ask the nanny what they eat. You know, I mean, that's that's the reality of being a working mom and and being away all the time. And so I could sit around and beat myself up or I could just say this is the reality and I need help. And that is basically how I do it. And I just accept the fact that it's unconventional that the woman is the one on the road all the time, but it's 2024 and it's not that unconventional. No, not in the slightest. Uh, and I had seen a, um, uh clip that you'd posted earlier about uh, that there was some backlash. You were surprised at some backlash from other women about the fact that you continued to work once you were going to have a family and that that had surprised you a little bit. Uh, do you think that that reaction has has leveled out now, as you say, since it's 2024 and we seem to be less uh, surprised to see women out in those kinds of areas? Or do you still think it's unfair that it's the women who get picked on and, and not so much the men in that case? Well, what was surprising to me was the criticism was more about working while pregnant. Um, I think that was the the I mean, I get criticism for kind of everything and I'm I own it. I I could care less actually. So long as my husband this these are issues that my husband and I have to deal with and and frankly I don't need out people from outside the family telling us how to live our lives, but I would say that 
the most criticism I got was for working while pregnant. And that was shocking because a lot of that criticism came from women. And, you know, how could you travel to Afghanistan while you're pregnant? How could you uh, just how how could I go to cover a drought in the Horn of Africa while pregnant? And it's sort of shocking to me because the 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 real answer is like everywhere I'm going, there are a lot of pregnant women. I mean, I've all been surrounded by pregnant women in Afghanistan or wherever I am. And no one seems very concerned about those women actually being pregnant or living in their own countries. So I think it's it's interesting how much people project onto other women and assume that they know their lives and their bodies better than themselves. And so for me, um, I kind of just really it was fascinating listening to to people because i find it incredible not only that people have that much time on their hands that they could evaluate my own pregnancy in my life but um but you know really these are decisions that um i as a mother and i as a woman do not take lightly but obviously that i you know discuss with my family and these are decisions i made and i felt comfortable with had the opportunity to teach in Ethiopia a few years ago and and um, saw somewhat firsthand some of the challenges that that women and pregnant women in particular had there and struggles with clean drinking water and good medical facilities and just uh, the drought and everything else that was going on. Uh, so, yeah, it's a struggle, as you say, that yeah. exists everywhere in the world. So, Absolutely. Let's talk real briefly about the rapid growth of AI. Is this something that's crossed your desk here? Are you concerned about what's happening with it? I know we've been having some sessions in our college about the uh, the rapid growth of it and what some consider to be the, the uh, unchecked growth. Do you see there are any positives or are there mostly negatives to AI? What do you think about it? Oh, of course, I think there are positives to any technology. I think if we're talking about photography, um, you know, first and foremost, we had to deal with fake news as as an issue and people questioning the authenticity of photographs. And now we have to deal with AI as well, where there are actually sort of uh, composite or fake images being made and coined as reality. So I think there are, there are constant there are a constant stream of issues that I as a journalist and a photojournalist have to deal with all of my colleagues because people are always questioning the authenticity of things. And so um, it's difficult, but there is luckily software developed and being developed um, that can strip photographs to to tell if they've been um, if they're composites or if they're being created or if they're real. And so I think that that technology will continue. I think that for me, nothing can ever replace having a, a human being on the ground and a set of eyes and, and for me, a camera. Well, we're and all the better for it that uh, that you're out there applying those trades and using your camera as well and as skillfully as you do, but doing all of the prep and the setup ahead of it that makes those good shots the capable and possible. And we greatly look forward to yeah. having you in Lincoln coming up on Tuesday night. I thank you for your time this morning. We wish you a safe journey across the pond, and we hope to have a full house for you Tuesday night at the Lead Center. Thank you so much for having me. Our guest today on Campus Voices, internationally known photojournalist Lindsay Adario, who will be the featured speaker Tuesday, March 5th at the E.N. Thompson Forum in the Lead Center on the UNL City campus with an address called Of Love and War, Stories of Tragedy and Resilience. 
This has been Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway, and as always, I thank you for your time this Sunday morning. This has been Campus Voices, issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To comment on this program, call 402-472-3054 or email to krnu at unl.edu. Campus Voices is a public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU, Lincoln.